You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. To the best of my knowledge, I think we've only had... Um, one New York Times bestseller here. Anybody know who it was? It was Karen Joy Fowler. Rena, am I right? Who? Oh, okay. So we've had two. Now we have our third. Gail. Carrot. Yes. All right. Please. That's a big deal. So I've been told, <laughs> and I just squeaked on, but uh, but I did squeak on, so yes, it was pretty did. exciting. Um, yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm still not quite comfortable with the experience, but uh, so hardcover. I'll be comfortable if you uh, you want to just move that experience <laughs> over here. <laughs> no, uh, mass market paperback. Um, I I begged as much as an author can uh, for my publishing house to only bring me out in mass market. I actually asked not to be hardback. Smart move. Um, yeah, this was right when the economy was sort of at its worst, and I thought no one's going to buy a book in hardback anymore, so <laughs> I, I pretty much begged. Um, I also have carpal tunnel, and I can't lift a hardback book anymore. And well, we uh, <laughs> carpal tunnel. I know, it's crazy. Um, and Sorry. also, my bookshelves only really fit mass market, so it's making it nice and tidy. Um, so yes, it's the mass market lists, which is why I squeaked on, I think, because if, in case anybody cares about the details, uh, New York Times bestsellers uh, allow 20 slots for mass market um, and only 15 for hard and trade. And I was number 20, so. <laughs> All right, so can everyone hear me? Is this directed properly? All right, so who here has read the second book? Okay, okay, good. So not everybody. Uh, so this, isn't, this is only gonna be a repeat for some of you. This is the second book in a series, and uh, the f who's read the first book? All right, okay, good. <laughs> I suspected as much. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you all are familiar with Alexia. One of the, uh, who's my main character, Alexia Terabody, um, now Macon. Uh, one of the questions I get most frequently is uh, how similar Alexia is to me. And um, you know how I came up with her personality, and uh, to the first question, I tend to take the fifth. <laughs> um, and the fifth oh, I take the fifth. Uh, I refuse to testify on the grounds that I might incriminate myself. Um, uh, but what I will say is that I, I do steal shamelessly from my friendship group, in particular. Although, of course, none of my characters are in any way resembling anybody living or dead, or however that saying goes. Anyway, um, but I do borrow shamelessly from my friends. <laughs> and sometimes I know I'm doing it, and so there are certainly certain aspects of Alexia that are friends of mine, and sometimes I'm completely unaware that I have put a person I know into my book um, until somebody else comes up to me and says, for example, why is Paul in your book? And I say, I didn't know Paul was in my book. And they say, oh yeah, he's in your book. So the scene that I've chosen to read for you guys uh, sort of gives you a look at 
Alexia's personality in full, but it also highlights one of these characters who happens to be someone I know who snuck in without my permission, um, who's also a favorite minor, minor character of mine. And to sort of set the scene up, Alexia has woken up and uh, her husband vanishes shortly after yelling very loudly and waking her up in pursuit of some sort of mystery in London that seems to have something to do with ghosts disappearing. And Alexia immediately gets out of bed to figure out what's going on and tries to hunt down the rest of the werewolf pack and uh, to grill them. And they've all disappeared as well. And so she turns her attention on the servants, and the servants are well used to this, and so they all quickly bustle about, ignoring her questions. And so Alexia is left with a mystery on her hands. And, uh, and so she has breakfast. <laughs> and then she goes to try and figure out what's happening. Alexia, oh, you guys are going to have to excuse my really bad British accent. I'm just saying that right now. Alexia finished her repast, gathered up her dispatch case, her latest parasol, and her long woolen cloak, and wandered out the front door, only to discover exactly where everyone had gone, outside onto the sweeping front lawn that led up to the cobbled courtyard of the castle. They had managed to multiply themselves, don attire of a military persuasion, and, for some reason known only to their tiny little werewolf brains, proceeded to engage in setting up a considerable number of large canvas tents. This involved the latest in government-issue self-expanding steam poles boiled in large copper pots like so much metal pasta. Each one started out the size of a spyglass before the heat caused it to suddenly expand with a popping noise. As was general military protocol, it took far more soldiers than it ought to stand around watching the poles boil. And when one expanded, a cheer erupted forth. The pole was grasped between a set of leather potholders and taken off to a tent. Lady Macon lost her temper. What are all you doing out here? No one looked at her or acknowledged her presence. Alexia threw back her head and yelled, Tunstall! She had not quite the lung capacity to match that of her massive husband, but neither was she built on the delicate flower end of the feminine spectrum. Alexia's father's ancestors had once conquered an empire. And it was when Lady Macon yelled that people realized how that had been accomplished. <laughs> Tunstall came bouncing over, a handsome, if gangly, ginger fellow with a perpetual grin and a certain carelessness of manner that most found endearing and everybody else found exasperating. Tunstall, Alexia said calmly and reasonably, she thought, why are there tents on my front lawn? Tunstall, Lord Macon's valet and chief among the clavagers, looked about in his chipper way as if to say that he had not noticed anything amiss and was now delighted to find that they had company. Tunstall was always chirrupy. It was his greatest character flaw. He was also one of the few residents of Woolsey Castle who managed to remain entirely unfazed by, or possibly unaware of, either Lord or Lady Macon's wrath. This was his second greatest character flaw. He didn't warn you? The clavigers freckled face was flushed with exertion from helping to raise one of the tents. No, he most certainly did not. Alexia 
tapped the silver tip of her parasol on the front stoop. Tunstall grinned. Well, my lady, the rest of the pack has returned. He flipped both hands at the canvas-ridden chaos before her, waggling his fingers dramatically. Tunstall was an actor of some note. Everything he did was dramatic. Tunstall, said Alexia carefully, as though to a very dim child, this would indicate that my husband possessed a very, very big pack. There are no werewolf alphas in England who can boast a pack of such proportions. Oh, well, the rest of the pack brought the rest of the regiment with them, explained Tunstall, in a conspiratorial way, as though he and Alexia were partners engaged in the most delightful lark. I believe it is customary for the pack and fellow officers of a given regiment to separate upon returning, so that, well, one doesn't wake up to find hundreds of soldiers encamping on one's lawn. Well, Woolsey has always done things a little differently. Having the biggest pack in England, we're the only ones who split for military service. So we keep the cold steam guards together for a few weeks when we get home. Builds solidarity. Tunstall gestured expansively once more, his fine white hands weaving about in the air, and he nodded enthusiastically. And does this solidarity have to occur on Woolsey's front lawn? Tap, 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 went the parasol. The Bureau of Unnatural Registry, Burr, was experimenting with new weaponry of late. At the disbanding of the Hippocrats Club several months previous, a small compressed steam unit had been discovered. It apparently heated continually until it burst. Lord Macon had shown it to his wife. It made a ticking noise just prior to explosion rather like that of Alexia's parasol at this precise moment. Tunstall was unaware of the correlation, or he might have proceeded with greater caution. On the other hand, being Tunstall, he might not. So that uh, introduced you to sort of Alexia's uh, character, but also to Tunstall. And in case you hadn't guessed, Tunstall is the person who turned out to be somebody I knew without my realizing it. <laughs> Um, luckily for me, my friend who is Tunstall is the kind of friend who then proceeded to bleach and dye his hair red and show up at my book launch party pretending to be Tunstall. So <laughs> it all worked out well in the end. Uh, do I have time for a second? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so the, uh, the second section I've chosen to read introduces Lord Macon, our hero, in, in this little journey. And it also kind of opens up the problem that drives the book and, and accounts for its title, Changeless, which is this epidemic that has kind of seized a certain area of London. Um, and it also introduces another absolutely favorite minor character of mine. I have a little bit of a thing for minor characters, which you may or may not have noticed by the sheer quantity of characters in my books. Um, I really do believe it's kind of one of my premises that uh, people accomplish noble goals and um, they succeed in life with their th friends. You have to have help from your friends. And so um, I make Alexia my heroine and she's pretty kick-ass, but she tends to solve her problems um, with, her he with help. And I don't think that's a weakness. I think that's her one of her greatest strengths. So uh, that's why there are so many characters in my books, I think. But here we are, Lord Macon. Uh, oh, right, to set this up, he is dashing into London in wolf form to deal with uh, the problem. 
The Earl found himself enjoying the run a good deal less when, just after entering the city proper right around Fairfoot Road, he abruptly and completely lost his wolf form. It was the most astonishing thing. One moment he was dashing along on four paws, and the next his bones were crunching, his fur retreating, and his knees crashing down upon the cobbles. It left him shivering and panting, naked in the road. Great ghosts, exclaimed the aggrieved nobleman. Never had he experienced the like. Even when his gloriously frustrating wife used her preternatural touch to force him back to humanity, it was not so sudden. She generally gave him some warning. Well, a little warning. Well, a yell or two. He looked about, worried. But Alexia was nowhere near, and he was pretty darn certain he'd managed to leave her safe, if fuming, back at the castle. There were no other preternaturals registered for the greater London area. What, then, had just happened? He looked to his knees, which were bleeding slightly and quite definitely not healing. Werewolves were supernatural. Such minor scrapes ought to be closing up right before his eyes. Instead, they leaked his slow old blood out onto the muddy stones. Lord Macon tried to change back, reaching for that place from which he drove his body to split its biological nature. Nothing. He tried for his Anubis form, the Alpha's ace, with the head of a wolf and the body of a man. Still nothing. Which left him sitting on Fairfoot Road, completely unclothed and deeply confused. Struck with the spirit of investigation, he backtracked a short way. He tried for Anubis' form once more, changing just his head into that of a wolf. It was faster than full shift. It worked, but left him in a conundrum. Dally about as a wolf, or press on to the office naked. He changed his head back. Normally, when there was a chance he might have to change publicly, the Earl carried a cloak in his mouth. But he had thought to make it safely to the burr offices and into the cloakroom before decency became necessary. Now he regretted such careless confidence. Formerly, Merroway had been right. Something was terribly wrong in London, and that apart from the fact that he was currently lollygagging about Starkers inside it. It would appear that it was not only the ghosts who were being affected. Werewolves, too, were undergoing alteration. He gave a tight smile and retreated hurriedly behind a pile of crates. He would lay good money that the vampires weren't growing any feeding fangs tonight either, at least not the ones living near the Thames. Countess Nadasti, queen of the Westminster Hive, must be positively frantic. Which, he realized with a grimace, meant he was likely to get the unparalleled pleasure of a visit from Lord Ambrose later that evening. It was going to be a long night. The Bureau of Unnatural Registry was not situated, as many a confused tourist expected, in the vicinity of Whitehall. It was in a small, unassuming Georgian building just off Fleet Street, near the Times offices. Lord Macon had made the switch ten years ago, when he discovered that it was the press, not the government, that generally had a handle on what was truly transpiring around the city, political or otherwise. This particular evening, he had cause to regret his decision, as he now had to make his way through the commercial district, as well as several crowded thoroughfares in order to get to his office. He almost managed the trek without being seen, skulking through the grubby streets and around mud-spattered corners of London's finest back alleys. 
It was quite the feat, as the streets were crawling with soldiers. Fortunately, they were intent on celebrating their recent return to London and not his large, white form. But he was spotted by the most unexpected individual near St. Bride, the unfragrant scent of Fleet Street in the air. A toff of the highest water, dressed to the nines in a lovely cut-front jacket and stunning lemon-yellow cravat tied in the Osbodastron style, materialized out of the darkness behind a brewing pub, where no toff had a right to be. The man doffed his top hat amiably at the naked werewolf. Why, I do declare, if it isn't Lord Macon, how do you do? Fancy, aren't we a tad underdressed for an evening stroll? <laughs> the voice was mildly familiar and laced with amusement. Biffy, said the Earl on a growl. And how is your lovely wife? Biffy was a drone of reputation, and his vampire master, Lord Akeldama, was a dear friend of Alexia's, much to Lord Macon's annoyance. So, come to think of it, was Biffy. Last time the drone had visited Wolsey Castle with a message from his master, he and Alexia had spent hours discussing the latest hairstyles out of Paris. His wife had a penchant for gentlemen of the frivolous persuasion. Connell paused to deduce what that said about his own character. <laughs> Hang my lovely wife, he answered. Get into that tavern there and wrestle me up a coat of some kind, would you? Biffy arched an eyebrow at him. You know I would offer you my coat, but it's a swallowtail, hardly useful, and would never fit that colossal frame of yours anyway. He gave the Earl a long, appraising look. Well, isn't my master going to be all of a crumble for having missed this? <laughs> Your impossible patron has seen me naked already. Biffy tapped his bottom lip with a fingertip and looked intrigued. Oh, for goodness sake, you were there, said Lord Macon, annoyed. Biffy only smiled. A cloak! A pause, and then the added grumble of, please! Biffy vanished and returned with alacrity, bearing an oilskin greatcoat of ill design and briny smell, but that was at least large enough to cover the Earl's indignities. The Alpha shrugged it on and then glared at the still-smiling drone. I smell like parboiled seaweed. Navy's in town. <laughs> so, what do you know of this madness? Biffy might be a pink, and his vampire master even more so, but Lord Akeldama was also London's main busybody, and he ran his ring of impeccably clad informants so efficiently it put anything the government could muster to shame. Eight regiments came into port yesterday. The Black Scots, the Northumberland Fusiliers, the Coldstream Guards. Biffy was being pointedly obtuse. Lord Macon interrupted him. Not that. The mass exorcism. Hmm, that. That is why I was waiting for you. Of course you were, sighed Lord Macon. Biffy stopped smiling. Shall we walk, my lord? He took up position next to the werewolf, who was no werewolf at all anymore, and they strode together toward Fleet Street. The Earl's bare feet made no noise on the cobbles.
Was it my imagination, or did you once read Cold Steam Guards? Cold Steam Guards, yes. If, cool. if, if you're right. aware with the regimental system, it's the Cold Stream Guards in reality. But I write steampunk, so yes. it's the okay, Cold Steam Guards. So. <laughs> uh, if everyone will prepare one or two questions and comments for our, our readers, uh, let's take 10 minutes and have a drink for the kids. Yay! <laughs> and come right back. Cool. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.